Well, good morning. It's good to see you here uh, today. As Jerry mentioned, over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the most loved Christmas carols that we sing at this time of the year. And uh, I think this is going to give us a, a fresh look at some of the songs that we've become so familiar with that maybe we uh, really, what that means. Do you ever sing a song in church and go, um, for example, classic hymn, Here I Raise My Ebenezer? And you think, I don't, do I have an Ebenezer? What is that? It, it, I think mine has a pain, you know? You, you sing words like that, and you're lifting up these words, and yet you don't know what they mean. And I think sometimes that's true in our Christmas carols uh, as well. And so what Jerry and I would like to do over the next uh, few weeks is take some of those songs that we love and we'd like to kind of unpack them a little bit, give you a little bit of the background of why they were written, what they mean, and hopefully then as we sing them, there's a greater meaning and a greater understanding uh, of those songs. Well, one songwriter musician recently wrote this. I want to read this to you. The best of them, meaning Christmas, Christmas carols, Tell the gospel story in some of the most innovative and inviting language we've ever seen in religious verse, certainly in the English language. In terms of art, they are the masterworks, the treasured heritage of the church we shouldn't ignore. Young and old, churched and unchurched, are united in wanting to sing Christmas carols during the Christmas season. He goes on, though, to write this, which I thought was very interesting. More than that, however, I'd say it's our responsibility to have a high view of congregational worship. Our singing is always a witness. Therefore, if our churches don't sing well or sing apathetically or sing while distracted by iPhones and casual conversation, we become an appalling witness to outsiders. He ends by saying, so let's take these songs and use them as a galvanizing force for our singing that we might declare to all who are present the breathtaking good news of Jesus. I read that this week and I thought that was so appropriate and so fitting uh, to the series that we're going to begin uh, here today. Well, for most of us, whether you grew up in church or not, you did grow up singing the song Joy to the World, right? Written by Isaac Watts, and it's probably one of the most familiar Christmas carols uh, that we sing. Now, few would argue as well that the uh, father of English hymns was none other than Isaac Watts himself. In fact, uh, this week I realized, I guess for the first time, because I don't study this on a, on a regular basis, that he wrote more than 750 hymns. And his works, uh, even today, are still being printed in, uh, in books and projected onto screens as we did uh, this morning and sung by Christians all over the world. Isaac Watts was born in 1674 in Southampton, England. He was raised in a deeply uh, religious home. His earliest memories, I read this week, were of uh, his father's concrete convictions about religious liberty. Uh, some of you are passionate about those things. Isaac Watts grew up in a home like that. Watts Sr. even spent time in prison on two separate occasions for his uh, outspoken nonconformist views. And Isaac uh, Watts' parents saw to it that their love for Christ and his word were passed on to their, their son. I read with interest this week that, that as a child, Watts showed remarkable propensity uh, for rhymes, uh, much to his father's chagrin. I don't know if any of you have kids that like to rhyme, and after a while, it, it, it's cute, right? And then after a while, you're, you're saying, okay, okay, I, I got that. 
And then they continue to do these things, and after a while it becomes annoying. Well, that was true in Isaac Watts' family. After family prayer time uh, one day, Mr. Watts confronted his young son, uh, Isaac, about why he had opened his eyes during prayer. Uh, Isaac creatively explained that he had been distracted saying this, a little mouse, for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say its prayers. Just repeated that. Unamused by his, by his son's rhyming, uh, he wanted to discourage such juvenile behavior. And so his dad actually spanked him, to which Isaac cried out, Oh, Father, Father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. Can you imagine what it was like growing up with young Isaac Watts? Can you imagine what it was like as a parent having a son like that? Uh, no amount of spankings, the historical record will tell us of his life, uh, could discourage him from his love of rhyme, poetry, and music uh, from his heart. If you were to read his story, you would recognize that uh, he grew up to become a pastor of a very large uh, church uh, there in England. He was known for his great preaching uh, skill. In fact, he trained other pastors there in the city. And throughout his years of ministry, Watts obsessively sought to put his uh, Christian convictions on paper so that other people like you and me uh, could take those deep-seated convictions and understanding of Scripture and we could actually sing them out to God. I was thinking this week, I'm so thankful that there are men and women over the course of history that have had that gift and have shared that with the church. Uh, the songs you need to understand also that Isaac Watts wrote were not always uh, very well received uh, by the church that was around him. I think it's a very important lesson for us to learn that some of the songs that we sing today were at the time that they were written pretty controversial because of the rhythm, because of the tunes, and yet the church over a period of time began to accept them. I've begun to think uh, even uh, this week, wondering what are the songs that right now, to some of us, we go, I don't really like that song. It's too modern. It's too contemporary. And 150 years from now, it's going to be one of the great songs of the church. In fact, Isaac Watts was of his day probably uh, the Chris Tomlin uh, of his day, if you can picture uh, that. Up until this point, the songs uh, selection in most uh, Protestant churches had been nothing uh, more than just the Psalms, which was not a bad thing. But some of you know that John Calvin, during the Reformation, had translated the Psalms into the common language of his day, French, uh, so that they could be sung uh, corporately. And like Calvin did for the people of his day, uh, Isaac Watts uh, did as well. And in 1719, he published uh, a writing of the songs for congregational uh, singing, and he paraphrased 138 psalms through the lens of the fulfillment of the redemptive work of Christ in the New Testament, which is a really cool thing. And the hymn book was entitled, uh, if you're taking notes, get ready, because it's a long one. Here's the name of the hymn book. The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state in worship. What a name for a hymn book. And in that collection, here's what's very interesting. In that very collection, we find the song that we're going to talk about this morning, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. Uh, the text says, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, not has come. Let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains Repeat the sounding joy. 
Then the third stanza, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. If you notice the lyrics to the song, Joy to the World, you will notice that there's nothing about shepherds. There's nothing about a manger scene. Nothing about wise men. Nothing about angels or any of the other elements that we would typically associate uh, with the Christmas story. And the reason uh, for this is because Isaac Watts did not intend joy to the world to be a Christmas carol. Now, if that's not a downer for the whole Christmas season, I don't know what is, right? He never intended it to be a Christmas carol at all. Joy to the world certainly traces the redemptive story throughout history. In fact, as we've been looking in our thread uh, series from the promise in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 to Christ's return, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In fact, that opening line to joy to the world is sometimes sung incorrectly. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And yet the correct words are, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Watts was not describing some event that had already taken place. He was describing the event that we were yet looking forward to. And even today in 2015, we yet look forward to, and that is the day that the Lord would come, the return of Christ. And so the main point of joy to the world is Isaac Watts' explanation of Psalm 98. If you have your Bible or your electronic device, why don't you look there with me at Psalm 98, and we'll see that it refers directly to the Lord's second coming. And that's precisely what the song is all about. It speaks of Jesus' final coming to earth when the Savior reigns and when he rules the world with truth and grace. Follow along as I read Psalm 98. In the ESV, it says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, and with the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Verse 7, let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Behold, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And here's what you'll find if you were to read through the book of Psalms. And I know many of you have done that probably uh, in your own personal time with the Lord. Maybe you do it for family devotions around a dinner table. But many Psalms express the reasons why we or somebody else mourn, why we're sad. Uh, Psalm 98, in fact, is one of the most joyous uh, Psalms. It's one of the most joyful songs in the Bible. Uh, and it's noisy right from the beginning. It's wholly given to praise. It's pure joy and celebration. In fact, one Bible teacher outlined Psalm 98 this way. We see God as the Savior. We see God as the King. And God as the Judge. In verses 1 through 3, we see Him as the Savior. In fact, the word that's translated salvation, it occurs in each of the, three, uh, the, the first uh, three verses. And it includes the idea of victory. 
In fact, if you're looking at a King James uh, translation this morning, in verse 1, it's actually translated that way, as victory. And it's because of the new act of deliverance or the new victory that the people are to sing this new song. It's probably good that the psalmist doesn't tell us what they're being delivered from exactly because, as one commentator said, if we knew what they were being delivered from, we would simply spend our time talking about that. It's far more important that we talk about the deliverance in terms of God's victory and what we have experienced as followers of Jesus through Jesus Christ from our sin. Here's what we need to understand. And if you're here this morning, you've never heard the good news uh, of the gospel. Maybe you've come to church before and all you've heard is somebody talk about some uh, feel-good type of message, but you've never heard the pure, unfiltered, uh, direct gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to understand this morning. The single greatest problem that you and I have is our sin. Now, that's not really a popular message to preach in churches across America today, but that's our greatest need, is that we are sinners. It is not a lack of self-esteem. That if we just felt better about ourselves, that, that, that our life would be better, that we would live a, a more fuller, complete life. No, it's that we're sinners. It's not our lack of accomplishment or anything else. Sin both separates and it destroys. It certainly separates us from God who is the source of all good. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. It comes from God. Sin separates us from that God, from that kind of a relationship. But it also destroys uh, relationships. And in the end, it brings us to that final place of all separation, and that separation is eternal uh, damnation, eternal hell, separation from God for all of eternity. And so the gospel answers this question, who is to save us from our sin, from this sin? We look to ourselves, and we don't find any help. If we could conquer sin on our own, we would do it. Most of us are like that. If, if we could somehow do something about it, we would do it ourselves, but we can't. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrestled with it, which gives me great comfort, right? Should you as well. If the Apostle Paul, one of the, uh, the, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, who God breathed those words through, if he could write in Romans 7, what a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? What a question. The next verse gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how does God do it? Paul explains in Romans 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so we have deliverance from sin's penalty. Jesus died for us in our place, so there is now no condemnation. And we're delivered from sin's power. So we can no longer say, well, why did you do that? 
And you repeat, well, the devil made me do it. I I just couldn't help but do it. No, we have been released. If we are in Christ, we have been released from sin's power. We've been delivered from sin's power. We have the ability through Christ, through the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. We have the ability to be able to say no, to live the life that God wants us to live. So God is our Savior. Number two in verses four to six, God is the King. The second stanza of Psalm 98 praises God as king. The first stanza praised God as savior and called on the people of Israel to sing a new song to him. And this stanza views him as the king, not only of Israel, but of the whole earth. And so it broadens its call to worship by engaging the whole earth, not just Israel, when it says, Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. We need one of those, don't we? We need a ram's horn. I was watching UNC playing Clemson last night, and they did a close-up. Anybody see that close-up of the ram? And I'm like, what the heck must that ram be thinking? I mean, how many coats of paint were on that ram's uh, horns? Wouldn't it be cool to have one of those horns and have somebody that was blowing that thing in worship? Wouldn't that be awesome? Let's get one of those for next Sunday. The most striking feature of this particular stanza, verses 4 to 6, is something we see throughout the whole Psalms, and it's the desire of the psalmist that the worship of God be joyful, and above all, and don't miss this, all right? I know it's Christmas message, but don't miss it. Above all, our worship is supposed to be, are you ready? It's supposed to be loud. Now, I know there's some of you that don't like it loud. Now, some of you, in fact, uh, from time to time, we get comments that maybe the bass is too loud or the speakers are so loud, and I realize we control that to some extent, but you need to understand there's a day coming, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to get to heaven and you're going to figure out that God wants his worship of himself to be loud. We can't get around it. In fact, according to one Old Testament professor, he said this, the noise of temple worship was legendary. Now you think about temple worship, right? You think about going into a temple, and I think about going, hmm, here we are to worship. And I think just of, of chanting, right? And yet, he says, no, it was legendary that it was, that it was loud, it was noisy. And he points to 2 Chronicles 29 and then to Ezra chapter 3, where in the second passage, the sound of the instruments and the shouts of the people are said to have been, verse 13 of Ezra chapter 3, they were heard from far away. And so, if you're in the auditorium this morning and we're worshiping and people are hearing us in the gymnasium down here, That's a good thing, right? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Let me ask you this. Should the worship of the Lord, by God's people, should it be any less exuberant today? I think not. We have the completed uh, canon of Scripture. We have the ability to be able to know everything God wants us to know about him. Should we be quiet when we have come to know this great King of Kings, this Lord above, the, 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 the King that is greater than all earthly kings? I would say to you this morning, shame on us for sometimes having a very lackluster 
half-hearted praise and worship time. Beware of singing if you're half dead or half asleep. Maybe you're like me and you were flipping between three football games uh, last night, right? Just kind of flipping one to see, you know, don't miss a play, don't miss anything. And so you show up at church on a Sunday morning and your worship is something less than exuberant. Don't let that happen. Not all of us have good voices, right? I mean, some of you, I'm sure, you've been like me at times where you're thinking, I don't know what this person in front of me is thinking, right? You ever felt that way? Some of you are going, yeah, the person in back of me should have been feeling that way this morning, right? It doesn't really mean, matter if you have a good voice. I don't think uh, that the angels in heaven find poor voices offensive. And I certainly don't think that the King of Kings, the Savior of the universe, the one who loved us enough to shed his innocent blood on a cross, is offended because you don't have a good voice. So can I give you permission that even if you are not the greatest singer in the world and you're never going to be, as Jerry said, like Barry Mantelo, did anybody, did anybody pick up on that, Barry Mantelo? <clears throat> All I could think was of an antelope, <laughs> you know, Barry Antelope. <laughs> Maybe you don't uh, have a voice uh, like that, but let me, let me just give you permission. I know our worship leaders would say this. Let me just give you permission to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Thank you. Yeah. And somebody, you bring a ram's horn next week, it's welcome here in this place, all right? We worship God as the king, and we do so in an exuberant way. We do so in a loud way. And then lastly, the psalmist uh, writes as God being the judge, verses 7 to 9. The final stanza is poetic, and in some ways it is the most unexpected stanza because the psalmist calls on the entire creation to praise God. I'm amazed at the the verses throughout the Psalms and other places in Scripture that says, basically, if we don't praise him, what will happen? All of creation will. The rocks will cry out, right? I don't want a rock, whatever that looks like. I don't want a rock to sing in my place. But in the second stanza, the appeal is to the nations of the earth. In the last stanza, the call is to creation, to all of the cosmos, And the reason is that God is coming to judge the world. He's going to make everything right. Won't that be awesome? It's not going to be some politician that's going to come on the scene. No matter how loud, no matter uh, how arrogant he might be, he's not going to come on the scene and make everything right again. No, that day is coming when the righteous one, the judge, the king of the universe will come and he's going to make everything right as it should be, as he intends for it to be. And there will be no more suffering. There will be no other ills of this world that we have now. They are all going to be set right. And we know, obviously, that this is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. The first coming of Christ at Christmas stands as a historical guarantee uh, that we can take it to the bank that his second coming is assured. So that's what Isaac Watts is writing about. 
He's writing about joy to the world. The Lord is come. There is going to be a day when he is going to come back for us. And we sing joyfully because we know that because he came here, he is going to come again. That's a guarantee. In fact, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I, I thought about that this week, that just like the people in Isaiah's time, we're living in a land in a time of deep darkness, aren't we? We live in a world, unfortunately, we saw it this week on our TV screens, we live in a world of mass shootings, of violence in the name of religion, of racial tension, broken marriages and other broken relationships. We live in a world that's full of immorality, of addictions, and all kinds of selfishness. And there is going to come a day when God is going to make that all right again because he is the righteous judge. Here's the truth of the matter. People desperately need to hear and understand the hope that can be found in the fact that Jesus was born, that he was crucified, that he rose again from the grave as our Savior, and that he is coming back as our conquering king, as the king of the universe to bring righteousness and justice to this world. The birth of Jesus and the return of Jesus are good news of great joy that are to be indeed for all people. Here's here's the interesting thing. Our great privilege, the greatest privilege I believe that we have of followers of Jesus, short of our ability to be able to worship him, which is our primary responsibility as followers of Jesus, to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I would argue, and I've said it to you before, I believe there is a day coming when we'll do that better than we've ever done it before, and that'll be the day that we are at the feet of Jesus. Right? As great as our worship may be down here, and sometimes when the, the band is just right and the lyrics are on the screen, are expressing our hearts in just the right way, there, there's got to be something that's going to be just incredible of being at the feet of Jesus. Anybody with me? That's going to be awesome. That's going to be great. But here's the thing that we're never going to be able to do better than we can do it right now, and that is proclaim to others who desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel, joy to the world, the Lord is come. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And they, how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming? You know, I'm convinced that for those of us that live in countries like the United States of America, we have had God's word for so long. We've heard the gospel message proclaimed for so long that it's easy in a service like this and to go through Psalm 98 and to think of the joy that should be in our hearts as a result of what we have experienced in Christ, it's easy for us just to simply have it become commonplace, is it not? And yet that's not true. 
in many places around the globe. They don't take this book for granted. They don't take the good news of the gospel for granted. Let me show you what I mean. I saw that with the Chinese several months ago. And I was just overwhelmed by that. Jerry and I were looking at it together a couple weeks ago and we came across this video of these, this Indonesian tribe, 2010, who received their copy of Scripture for the first time in their language. And that's why I say to you, I think we've taken it for granted. We live in a country where I've got several of these in my home, on my shelf, and you do too. We've heard the gospel proclaimed so often that it's become numb to some of us, even those of us that have become followers of Jesus. That's why we don't sing, by the way, exuberantly as we once did. But what if you had no electricity? What if you had no written copy of the Bible? What if you can't read? What if you have no internet connection? Most of you know that uh, a few weeks ago I traveled with a group of men to Kenya. We had several training sessions with a group of pastors, and we spent time with some of the men, some of the pastors that we support here at Northwest on a monthly basis. We made plans uh, to build two churches, one of which should be completed in January, which is pretty exciting. A few days before we were uh, coming home, we sat down in a restaurant, and we met a couple from Michigan who also worked in the same region of Kenya that that we work in. And we learned about a device that's being distributed all over the world to proclaim the message of the gospel, that joy to the world. And I want to show you this morning what this is, because this is pretty cool. It's called the Proclaimer. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? Look at this. It's got a solar panel built into it right here. And it's, it's preloaded with an audio Bible, usually a New Testament, and they have recorded these in hundreds of languages of the people of the world. And it was developed as a playback device for poor and illiterate people that lacked the resources to receive the Word of God. And with them in mind, it was developed with these features. It's practically indestructible. I'm not going to test it, but... Um, that's why the guy does in the Sprint store trying to sell you an iPhone with an expensive case. You know, they throw it against the wall. I'm not going to do that today. Um, but it's practically indestructible. It has an installed microchip that doesn't erase or wear out from frequent playing. The battery can be charged both through the solar panel and also, look at this, by a hand crank, which is pretty awesome. And then it's got a little um, adapter here where you can plug it into uh, the wall as well. And it has enough um, life in it to replay the entire New Testament more than a thousand times. And uh, the solar panel, in addition to charging the battery, will run the proclaimer even without battery as long as there is sunlight. So literally, these can be uh, <clears throat> these can be taken to the remotest parts of the globe, where people can't read, where they can't write, where all they have is ears to hear. And they can hear the good news of the gospel in their own language. All right? Now, if that's not cool enough, 
it gets cooler. I'm sitting at this table with this couple from Michigan, and I'm sitting with one of our main pastors who, as I told you, got his visa. He's going to be coming here in the spring to Northwest. He'll be preaching on our stage, which I'm excited about. We're sitting there, and Emmanuel's sitting across the table, and I'm hearing about this proclaimer, and I'm already, I mean, I'm a vision guy, right? I'm already going, okay, where are these things? How come I've never heard of them? How much do they cost? How do we get them over here? And Emmanuel says, I've heard about it. I've never seen one, but I was the voice of Jesus on the recording. And I'm going, dude, that's really arrogant to say that you are the voice of Jesus. This is Emmanuel in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. Emmanuel is our main guy with the pokot. We support him a full salary every single month, just like what you give Jerry or I as a paycheck. Emmanuel gets a paycheck, and we support him so that he can do the work of the ministry uh, there. Is that awesome or what? Is that cool? So here's what we want to do. Uh, Jerry and I are sitting talking and just thinking about how can, we, how can we make this series real practical for us as a church. And so we thought as we want to start out with joy to the world, how can we... How can we take a simple and practical step to proclaim this joy to the world? And so here's what we're going to do. Just spontaneously as we sing this last song, all right? We didn't want you to come prepared for this. I want it to be spontaneous today. Uh, We're going to have an opportunity to do something that we very rarely do here at Northwest, and that is pass an offering plate. In fact, we're not even going to pass an offering plate because we don't have offering plates. We're going to pass some baskets, all right? And as the Lord lays it upon your heart, if you're excited about something like that, about proclaiming this joy to the world, I want you just simply to give a gift, right? And give above and beyond, all right? Don't just say, oh, I'm excited about the proclaimer for the Pocop people. I'll take all of my giving next month and I'll do this with it, all right? That's, that's not what we're after, all right? At this season of the year, as we proclaim joy to the world, I want you to, I just want us over the next three weeks to just freely give to this project, to proclaiming the gospel through this means and through written Pocot Bibles. We've already bought hundreds of them. We need hundreds more. These are about $75 each, just so you know. For $75, they can go into the remotest village where our Kenyan pastors serve. They can be left right there. And these people can hear the whole New Testament on a regular basis. And so we're going to have that opportunity to give here in just a moment. Joy to the world in Psalm 98 instruct us in our response to a great salvation. And for the believer, joy to the world is a message of joy. It's the the central theme, not only of the entire Christmas season. Don't miss this. Joy should be the theme of the entire Christian life. Why? Because we have experienced new life in Christ. Because we have the revealed, written word of God. And our joy is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then an empty tomb. And certainly his imminent return. That's why we sing joy to the world. 
It's not just about a little baby that was born in Bethlehem. It's about that conquering king and that one who is soon to come to judge the nations of the earth. That is why we sing and we proclaim joy to the world. The Lord is 